So we've been going through 1 Corinthians for quite a while now, and in chapters 1 through 6 of the letter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes about events that were, report, that were reported to him while he was away from Corinth. So some friends came to see him. They told him what was going on back in Greece. And the first six chapters, just him talking about the stuff that was reported to him. But starting in chapter 7, Paul begins answering questions that were posed to him by the Corinthians. So in chapter 7, he says, now about those things that y'all wrote about. And he dives right into marriage, divorce, and singleness. We spent the last two weeks talking about that. And in 1 Corinthians 8, where we are today, Paul says, now about food sacrificed to idols. So open up with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 8, if you will. Let's read that together. While you're getting there, I'll remind you that one of the most important regular disciplines for our spiritual formation by God is regular time in his revealed word, the Bible. It's great to read it together here. Great to read it by yourself with friends or loved ones. If Bible reading's not a part of your everyday, I hope you will make it one very soon. 1 Corinthians 8, starting in 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Okay, so let's have a moment of real talk before we discuss food sacrifice to idols. Nobody in this church, nobody any of us know, is sacrificing food to Zeus and Apollo. It's not happening. So why don't we just skip over the whole chapter and get to something that might actually be relevant in real life? Food sacrifice to idols was a normal cultural practice at the time which the Corinthians were confused about. Like many of the other unique matters that are discussed in this letter of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians didn't know how their Christianity was supposed to interact with their culture. Because not all cultural norms are bad, and not all cultural norms are good. Every culture or subculture on earth, earth has things about it that are unholy in God's eyes and things about it that are holy in God's eyes, or many things at least that are holy in God's eyes. So what makes this unique problem of food sacrificed to idols in Corinth relevant to us living here is a basic question behind the unique problem. The basic question behind the unique problem is how are we to know from God's point of view if something is simply different or if it is sinfully different? Where are the lines? There's lots of stuff scripture tells us to do or not to do. We can get very specific about some of it. And we should align our lives with those specific teachings outlined in the New Testament. Remember, when Jesus died for our sins, he also fulfilled the law of Moses for us. That's why you can do your Bible study, eat a BLT, and say, Amen, baby. Even though that's true, 
there's still way more stuff the Bible doesn't specifically tell us about than it does. Because the Bible's ancient and its canon is closed. God is done giving us more books of the Bible. The point is that lots of challenges that we face, lots of stuff that we use every day, didn't exist when the books of the Bible were written. There's no biblical Hebrew word for smartphone. No Greek Greek phrase for road rage on 494 during rush hour. No secret verse in Revelation telling us God's prescribed number of hours on Nintendo Switch. No, it's not 70 times 7. Some of us act like it is. But just because the Bible doesn't specifically point to those things doesn't mean that the Bible has nothing at all to say about them. How we use our smartphones, how we drive, how we enjoy our hobbies. The Apostle Paul will get to talking about food sacrifice to idols, but Paul first establishes a guiding principle that frames the conversation about this matter and also frames any number of matters that we might face. So he starts the conversation not by talking about food, but about knowledge. Knowledge. I thought we were getting to the good stuff. Tacos, burgers, fried chicken. Come on. (laughs) He starts off talking about knowledge because of the status problem in Corinth. We've talked about it already, but if you're not a note taker or you weren't here, The Corinthians came out of a culture that was obsessed with power and status. They associated knowledge with a high status and therefore a sense of pride about being knowledgeable, or at least about having the money to keep a knowledgeable person on retainer. That's why Paul says that knowledge puffs up in verse 1. Used improperly, being smart, like being strong, good-looking, skilled, rich, whatever you think is cool— makes people stick out their chests in arrogance. But love builds up. When something is puffed up with air like a party balloon, it gets real big real fast. But if anybody's got a thumbtack, that thing got puffed up, puffed up real quick, going to get unpuffed real quick. But love builds up people, builds up our church, Love contributes something that's actually meaningful and good and long-lasting. When something is built up, it takes longer to grow. Hardly anything can be built up as fast as a balloon could be blown up. But the built-up thing will not explode if you poke it with a thumbtack. This is the either-or Paul is establishing. Prideful knowledge versus humble love. Then in verse 2, look there with me, he writes this, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. The person who thinks they know what's up hasn't yet learned enough to realize they don't know what's up. If you already know everything, how can you learn anything? Wise people don't look at information and say, I already know all that, you're wasting my time. Fools do that. It is foolish to let pride make you unteachable. Second, if someone is obsessed with knowledge and the status that knowledge brings, then the highest virtue, which is love, 
will seem lower to them. They'll treat love as lower than it actually is. And taking the thing that's supposed to be first and making it second, third, fourth, whatever, definitely not smart. We've all seen people like this. They say what's true, and they think that because they're saying what's true, they can be a jerk about it. Oh, I'm suffering for speaking the truth. You're suffering for being a punk. Paul says if you want to grow in maturity, speak truth in love in Ephesians 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, both at the same time. So don't choose to be a dumb-dumb. Don't not seek any knowledge at all, but recognize that the long-lasting path is not the inflated path of arrogant knowledge. It is the built-up, most excellent way of godly, biblical Christian love. Then verse 3. It says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The person who is known by God is not the person who knows the most about God. The person who is known by God is the person who loves God. If you want to know God, you don't start off by getting a degree. You start by loving God and letting yourself be loved by him and by those who also love him. And that, it's as easy and as hard as saying yes to Jesus. There is nothing wiser than agreeing that the king of the universe is who he says he is. This is why Paul starts off talking about arrogant knowledge versus humble love before he gets specific about idol worship and non-Christian religions. This is the fundamental culturalist principle. Christians, in all places, in all times, are called to live within the limits of knowledge and under the priority of love. If this is the foundation that we're reasoning from, we can substitute anything into the now-about-this-thing equation. We, we can talk about whether or not Christians should recreationally use marijuana. We can talk about being addicted to smartphones. We could talk about road rage. We could talk about gender identity in the church. We can talk about food sacrifice to idols. We can talk about anything in the church if we do so with humility about our knowledge and if we're committed to loving God and to building up one another through love. Okay, that's the foundation. What is food sacrifice to idols anyway? Remember that religion in Corinth was overwhelmingly Roman and Greek with temples to gods and goddesses all over the place. One of the things that happened in these temples was food and animal sacrifice. For example, if a farmer wanted to be blessed by the Greek harvest goddess, he would offer a sacrifice at her temple. He would bring a bundle of grain or he would bring a goat to be slaughtered. The more costly the sacrifice, the better the blessing, so they believed. But it was kind of a racket, because after a person offered food to be sacrificed, if it was an animal, animal it would be butchered, the temple workers would keep some of it to eat themselves, 
and then resell the surplus food or meat at the market, probably at a discount. So a person was offering food for free, which was sacrificed to the god or goddess at the temple. Then the food was resold at the market, and the money was kept to fund the temple. This is what the Corinthian Christians are asking about. Guys, this food was cheap. Way cheaper than hy I'm talking Aldi cheap. I've got four kids to feed. All my life, I have been buying the Aldi temple meat. But now I'm a Christian, and I know that this meat passed through the Greek temple as a sacrifice to a god or a goddess I don't worship. I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not rich, and I need to feed my family. Am I rejecting Jesus by buying and eating this food? So Paul writes this in verses 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. An idol is nothing at all. There is no God but one. Truth is, these little stone and wood and metal idol statues that look like gods and goddesses, those huge temples with the big statues, all of them are nothing but metal and wood and stone. It's just like Captain America said, there's only one God, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. So there are many quote-unquote gods. We mentioned the Greek goddess of harvest a moment ago. We're not saying we believe that she exists, but the idea of her does. We know Superman isn't a real dude flying around in a leotard rescuing people, but the character or the idea of Superman does exist, so I can mention it here, and basically all of you know who I'm talking about. Paul means that the idea of lots of different gods exists, but there's only one real God who actually exists, and we must worship him. In the same way, there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all created things came and through whom creation continues to exist. This is a tremendous statement about Jesus. You might miss it if you read too fast. Look what Paul is saying in verse 6. He says that Jesus the Son is God the Father's creation agent. In the beginning, God created through Jesus. And we continue existing because of Jesus. That's why the Apostle John says in John 1, Jesus was in the beginning with God the Father. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's why Paul will say in another letter that by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul flies over this idea pretty quickly because it's not the topic he's discussing, 
but it is a well-attested biblical teaching and of basic importance to all of us that Jesus the Son is God the Father's creation agent and he is creation's sustaining agent. So there are people in the world with authority who are called Lord, like how we call people sir or ma'am. This is why Paul says there are many lords and many gods. There can be temples, sacrifices, idols. You can have a whole made-up hierarchy of gods and goddesses, know all their names and backstories like we know all the superheroes in the movies. And they might exist as ideas, like Superman, but they don't exist objectively like you and I exist. There is only one real God who actually exists and only one real Lord Jesus who holds it all together. So these idols and temples, they're irrelevant. They don't really have any power other than that which people attribute to them. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Some people haven't yet matured into this perspective. Not everyone knows this, Paul says in verse 7. They're still spiritually immature. They're not able to eat food that may have gone through a pagan temple at some point. They think, oh no, my dinner went through the temple of Apollo. I've accidentally worshipped Apollo and rejected Jesus. Their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Weak is, it's a good literal translation of the Greek. I'd say a better contextual translation would be brittle. Their consciences are brittle, unbending, can't yet handle nuance. And Paul is saying, rejecting Jesus, it's, it's not like slipping on a banana peel. Ooh, how did that happen? Nobody will accidentally reject Jesus by eating something that was dedicated to a Greek god that doesn't really exist. Even though this is true, though, there are spiritually immature people with weak or brittle consciences who are carrying around unnecessary guilt and shame that defiles them. We're neither better nor worse for eating, Paul says, which is actually a pretty interesting development because, remember, Paul's Jewish. He was trained as a Pharisee, which is really, really Jewish. He knows the law of Moses back and forth. He knows the food laws. We still know them today. Jews are supposed to keep kosher. There are certain things they're not supposed to eat. No, no Bible study and BLT allowed for them. Eating unclean foods would make them ceremonially unclean. They couldn't approach God. But Paul saying food is irrelevant. Shouldn't he know better? When Jesus came, he lived a sinless life. He never violated God's law in any way. So when Jesus died on the cross as a completely pure sacrifice, he completely fulfilled God's law, and he thereby established a new law or a new covenant. Jesus' death is it's like the signature on a contract that makes it legally binding. New contract, new rules. 
That's why you have two big sections in your Bible. You have the Old Testament, old contract, old way of doing things, and the New Testament, new contract, new way of doing things. Even before he died, though, Jesus began preparing people for this new way of doing things. And one aspect of it was the Jewish food laws. So at one point, everybody's fussing about how some foods make you unclean and others don't. And Jesus basically says, if you want to know what's in a person's heart, don't look at what goes into their mouth. Listen to what comes out of their mouth. Don't look at the food in their hand. Look what their hands do. We read this in Gospel of Mark chapter 7. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. The Apostle Peter deals with this in Acts 10. He sees a vision of all these unclean animals. He hears a voice telling him to eat. He's Jewish. He doesn't want to do this. And then we read in Acts 10, 15, and then the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This is part of this larger vision of a new covenant, a new way of doing things. Peter is about to be sent in Acts 10 to preach to a Roman centurion. These unclean animals are an object lesson from God. The good news about Jesus is not just for Jews. It's for everybody. God has removed those barriers that keep people from him. That's really what it's about. That's why when Jesus was asked what the most important Old Testament laws were, he said in Matthew 22, the most important law is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So that's the big truth. Anyone moving toward maturity in Christ should eventually come to hold this view. Eat whatever you want. There is no inherent violation of God in so doing. Whatever your culture eats, go ahead. It will not keep you away from God as it once would have. You don't have to first become culturally Jewish in order to become a Christian. And becoming a Christian doesn't mean you must become culturally Jewish. You can be a Jewish Christian. You can be a Corinthian Christian. You can be an American Christian. But not everybody in Corinth is there yet. Love hasn't yet finished building them up. There's a clash between knowledge and love. And Paul is saying to the more mature Christians there, guys, if you have to err on the side of knowledge or on the side of love, err on the side of love which takes us into verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died Thus sinning, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Christians have the right to eat whatever they want. 
Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark 7. God told Peter in Acts 10 to eat things formerly called unclean. Eating something that was once devoted to a non-existent God doesn't mean you're worshiping it, period. However, there are some people who are, Paul, Paul's words, not mine, weak. They're weak in knowledge. They haven't yet reached a point in their faith where they're able to maintain a balance of using something without feeling guilty or without being thrown off course spiritually and actually worshiping it. Even though idols represent gods that don't exist, idolatry is the sin of worshiping anything other than the one true God. It is entirely possible to worship something other than the one true God, even if it's just the idea of something. G.K. Chesterton said, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. In 1 Corinthians, the unique problem is food sacrificed to idols, but the concept Paul teaches is broadly applicable. What might this look like for Christians today to apply this teaching of looking out for those with weak consciences? Might look like this. It's not a sin to consume alcohol. It isn't. I know you guys are like, duh, this is the Midwest. We like beer. But I'll tell you what, though, a lot of people down south don't know this. Jesus drank wine. Paul tells his protege Timothy, drink wine in 1 Timothy. When Christians ate the Lord's Supper in the first century, they were drinking wine, not grape juice, out of these factory-produced packets that we use. But drunkenness is wrong. But it's possible to consume alcohol without getting drunk, or even intending to get drunk. But what if somebody at church has an alcohol problem, and it's fresh? In fact, they sometimes find themselves tempted simply by driving by a bar or liquor store. In this case, if we're having, let's say, a Super Bowl party with the church family here, we wouldn't serve alcohol at it. We cannot allow our freedom in Christ, the fact that we know it's not a sin to drink and we don't have an alcohol problem, influence somebody else who does have an alcohol problem. We would be letting our freedom lead others into sin. Our freedom would become a source of harm to someone who is weak. All sorts of normal stuff can be abnormal for some people, either because they can't parse out where the lines are or it's such a source of temptation for them that they must remove some things from their lives altogether. Don't let what you know to be true stand in the way of someone else's relationship with God. Don't let your knowledge and freedom become a stumbling block for the weak. I've mentioned it up here before. I'm originally from New York, Long Island. I'm Italian, I'm not Jewish. And if you're from New York and you're Italian, it means that whether you like it or not, whether you go to church or not, you are Catholic. And if your mother can't make you Catholic, the nuns will. I saw a lot of hypocrisy growing up 
being raised Catholic. I'd hear one thing during First Holy Communion class and see people behaving completely different in the church parking lot. I remember thinking as a kid, these people say one thing and do another. I don't want anything to do with this. And later on, God put my aunt in my life, and she was a tremendous positive influence on me in showing what it really looks like to love Jesus and to live a Christian life. And it's in large part thanks to her example that I am standing here before you today. But for a long time after I first gave my life to Jesus, I didn't want to be anywhere near a Catholic church. I once went to St. Louis with a bunch of friends from college who were raised Protestant. And if you've been to St. Louis, there's a beautiful Catholic cathedral downtown. It was like a Thursday. They wanted to go in and just check out the architecture. But I couldn't go inside. To me, it was just even crossing that threshold, it was just this reminder of this old part of my life, that pre-Jesus time in my life and that hypocrisy and that season of pain when I was living without him. That's what walking into a building represented to me at that time. I had a brittle conscience. I couldn't walk into a building without thinking I was betraying Jesus, which is ridiculous. Where can we go from his spirit? Where can we flee from his presence? If we go to the heavens, he's there. If we make our bed in the depths, he is there. It took me a long time to be able to walk into a Catholic church and be okay with it. And there might be some people at church here who have weak consciences in their own ways. Don't worry, I won't list them and risk offending all of you. No sin was committed by walking into a building, and when I later decided that I could walk into a Catholic church, even sit through a mass, it was just me coming to terms with my own maturity. If you are a mature or knowledgeable Christian, the way you know if there's something you need to change in order to protect someone else is if it causes them to sin. If it causes them to sin, we remove things from our lives or refrain from certain behaviors if it leads legitimately confused young Christians to sin. Not to placate control freak older Christians who have been around long enough to know better. Paul dealt with those people back in chapter 3. He called them immature milk drinkers, told them to grow up and cut it out. If offering alcohol at a party causes another Christian to sin, Paul is saying, don't offer it. God the Father ordered Jesus the Son to die for us. We would be mistaken to think that he wouldn't ask you and me to suspend our freedoms or even to waive them entirely to protect our spiritual brothers and sisters who may be struggling. If you want to know a place where our culture and Christianity may conflict, this is absolutely one of them. We're Americans, we're free. We have rights. We didn't force anybody to make bad choices with their freedom. That is on them. Do not, for the sake of food, Romans 14, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Our actions, however inane, affect and influence others. We are not islands. What the children see in us matters. 
What we see in each other matters. Madeline Lengel tells us, she also tells us that love may well lead us into danger. It may lead us to die for our friends. If those of us who are more mature need to change the way we speak, the way we dress, what we drive, how nice our phones are, how we spend our time and energy, whatever, in order to help protect those who are weaker in their faith, Paul is saying we need to do that. If we're unwilling to do that, we, the quote-unquote more mature, are sinning against Jesus himself. This is exactly how Paul puts it in verse 12. We're ignoring how something good is being used for something bad, and in so doing, it becomes bad. It's not about bending over backwards every time somebody plays the victim to get their way. There doesn't seem to be any indication from our text here in 1 Corinthians that one group of people was demanding another stop eating a certain kind of food. Rather, there were some people who were legitimately confused about how their Christianity needed to tame their culture. We must develop the wisdom and insight to know when, perhaps, we may need to forego certain freedoms and to legitimately shield others in our church. I don't know what those things are. I'm not saying don't own a nice car. I'm not saying never play Nintendo. I'm not saying never have a beer. But be ready to apply Paul's framework to any of those things or to any number of other things. Be ready always to live within the limits of knowledge and under the priority of love. Paul himself was willing to say, go ahead and eat that temple sacrifice meat. There's only one God. But not if it's confusing people and pushing them to worship false gods because they haven't yet learned where the boundaries are. We must not worship our freedom instead of our Lord. And if you've been paying any attention to 1 Corinthians up to this point, then, then you know that this is one of the fundamental theological problems for Corinth. It can become a fundamental theological problem for us. Therefore, verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Freedom in Christ is not freedom to do whatever we want. True freedom in Christ will never disrupt the harmony of a local church. True freedom in Christ is a symbol of the harmony in a local church because it is the freedom to live as we were made to. Worship team, you guys can start making your way up. In Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, what drew the prodigal son home was remembering that he was his father's son. From a far-off land, he began his long journey back to his father when he remembered he was loved. If he'd simply thought about what he knew, he'd have never gone home. He knew he'd squandered his inheritance, disrespected the family, lived like a fool. That's what everybody knew. Knowledge would puff him up, even in his sorry state. He would say, this is what I know about myself. I'm unworthy. Why bother going home? And that was the posture he had going back. In fact, he basically said it to his father in the story. But even with his knowledge of the bare facts of the matter, love brought him home. And his father's love restored him to his place in the family. All of us are involved in Jesus' mission of discipling one another. 
This requires knowledge, but it begins and ends with a posture of love. Know what's true. Never stop seeking to know what's true. But do it humbly and always act out of the kind of love that builds one another up. Let's pray. Father, as we seek to know your truth, let us do so from a posture of love for you and for one another. Father, send your Holy Spirit to refine and temper our knowledge with a love that builds up our private lives, our families, our church, and our world. We ask this for the sake of your glory and your mission in Jesus' holy name. Amen.